So today we're continuing our preaching series on the journey of um, Moses and God's people through Exodus. Uh, I love the book of Exodus because it's a, a story of God's rescue plan for the Israelites from slavery into freedom. Um, we are going to be looking at Exodus today. I love this image of, the, of that incredible um, sea going back. And then we're going to have another one, another water image which is very, very different. So there he is, Moses in his basket. Don't you love those angels guarding over him? We're going to keep that one up. It's incredible what the children in this church are seeing, you know. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, in one of the kids' groups, um, they were asking, uh, having pictures, and one of the children, one of the young people in the group, they were very quiet. They just stayed on the floor and they had just time for quiet. And this, this particular young person said, I see eight angels in this room. And that really blew me away because children see things very often that we don't see. Now, that's Moses when he was three months. Um, I'd like to invite Moses when he was about 80 to come up and introduce himself to us, please. <laughs> Not bad for 80, huh? <laughs> no, I need this. Thank you. It has been said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have it thrust upon them. Judge for yourself how it was for me. My mum and dad were God-fearing and hard-working. They had no choice. They were Hebrew slaves, living in captivity in Egypt. My mother refused to be intimidated by the edicts of a tyrannical prince, Pharaoh himself. He was threatened by my people, so insecure about the possible uprising there could be as my people grew in numbers that he issued such an edict. All firstborn Hebrew sons should be killed by the midwives as they were born. These devout Hebrew midwives refused to comply with Pharaoh's requests. And when challenged, explained that the Hebrew women always seemed to have given birth before they arrived. <laughs> they too were women of faith, refusing to be influenced by a controlling and manipulative prince. They chose to trust in our God. I certainly wasn't born great, but I was born to parents who put their faith in a great God. The Israelites were becoming so numerous and so powerful that Pharaoh gave orders that every male infant should be drowned in the Nile. Mum and Dad realised what a fine baby I was and decided to hide me in the River Nile among the reeds in the marshes. Mine was the original Moses basket. Before long, an Egyptian princess came to bathe and discovered a beautiful Hebrew baby. She thought she'd like to adopt me and bring me up in the palace. She could get her father to agree to almost anything. Perhaps this was the start of my journey towards achieving greatness. I was given all the privileges that money could buy. Courtiers, philosophers, astrologers and high-ranking military men prepared me for a great future. Secret magic arts took the place of the worship of Yahweh. Gradually it began to dawn on me that I was an outsider in this culture that was defined by wealth and pagan beliefs. 
My mum had been employed as a nanny in those early years. Over and over she told me the stories of our ancient faith, of the promises that God had made us, of the fact that he had covenanted us to give us a land of our own. Mum loved to tell me all about the angels who guarded me when I was hidden in the Nile. I gradually began to see things beyond the material and the seductive. I now realised I was beginning to experience her holy presence in an alien spiritual culture. I grew into a very feisty and impulsive young man with a very strong sense of injustice that the Israelite slaves were subject to. I watched the cruel and abusive way in which they were treated. And one day, raw passion got the better of me. I stormed out of the palace and murdered an Egyptian slave driver in broad daylight. I needed to escape very quickly. No one trusted me any longer. Not my Hebrew clan, not my adoptive family. I fled to the desert, stripped in one single moment of all the trappings of wealth and privilege. No, no longer was there any hope of achieving greatness. The years passed. I became a nomadic shepherd, got married and had children. I look back now on those years as some sort of self-inflicted rehab. I learnt lessons I could learn in no other way. After 40 years of isolation and hard, hard work, the dull routine of my ordinary life was interrupted by a life-changing encounter I experienced with the God of my people. I saw his glory. I heard his voice. I am who I am. I want you to go back to Pharaoh and set my people free. It was the voice of a roaring lion. He reassured me that he knew all about the suffering of my people and he was coming down to rescue us. The voice seemed to change, more like a lamb than a lion. You will perhaps know that thousands of years later, the Lord God, the great I Am, sent his own son Jesus to rescue us from everything that enslaves us. Our pride, our fear, our addictions, pain. He speaks today, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth and the life. He invites us to receive his greatest gift to humanity, the promise of eternal life. Eternal life. He won't thrust greatness on you. He promises to be with you till the end of this age. And that surely is the greatest of all promises that we can possibly stand on. Moses lived, he was commended as a man of faith. He was one who had confidence in what he hoped for. We read in the book of Hebrews, by faith Moses' parents hid him because they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses chose to be ill-treated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of his culture. By faith he left Egypt rather than be intimidated by the fear of Pharaoh. And my prayer today has been very much that we are going to be emboldened by faith, by faith. 
um, in the Living God as we read some more about Moses and have a sense that there are some promises here for us all that are kind of waiting for us to draw down into our lives. They're like God's inheritance and he wants us to access them and spend them now. Please, please, please don't let any of us disqualify ourselves. We've had Moses' story. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see too many of the brightest and the best among you. There aren't many influential. There are not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chooses men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of us can get by with blowing our own trumpet before God. Everything we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God himself by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a trumpet, blow a trumpet for God. Love that. So let's not disqualify ourselves. We're going to have a look at this chapter. Um, I've divided it up into sections, and you won't need your Bibles because they're all going to appear on the um, PowerPoint, and we'll go through bit by bit. Um, I have such a strong sense that God has much to say to all of us. And so do, do keep, keep away and keep with the scripture. It's actually quite a practical Bible study. Um, it's a, a bit about how to, just how to keep standing on God's promises, because it's not easy. We all of us lose, lose focus and we forget what God said. So it's going to be quite a kind of practical look through Exodus chapter 6. So let's just have PowerPoint 1 up. And... Um, before uh, we, Fraser reads that passage and we consider it together, I just want to say that um, in the night last night, I, I was asking God, what, just sensing he wanted to say something fresh for someone here. And I believe it's um, for people who've uh, been a long time waiting for something that God has promised, a long, long time. And he just said, right out of the blue, I am watching over my word to fulfil it. I am watching over my word to fulfill it. Okay, let's, uh, let's now look at this passage, Fraser. Who do you go to when the going gets tough? The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. 
Thank you. So here we've got two uh, very different responses to trouble. We uh, have a description of Pharaoh who gave these Israelite overseers an impossible task. They had to make bricks, same number of bricks, but without straw. They must have been really, really exhausted. They must have been dispirited and just had that wearing down that you get when you're under relentless pressure. So, they had a good moan. They had a good moan and they blamed Moses for the mess they were in. And in doing that, they transferred all their frustration onto Moses and Aaron and gave Moses a pretty hard time. Moses was actually really new to his job, and even though God had already warned him that things were tough, he was trying his very, very best uh, to trust God. God had already promised to be with him, God had promised that he would demonstrate his power, and God had promised uh, his favour to Moses. This complaint, this dumping of all their stuff on Moses must have been really demoralising for Moses. Notice what Moses does. He responds very, very differently. He goes to the Lord. He turns away from the people and he goes to the Lord. Why, Lord? Why, Lord, have you brought this trouble on these people? Is this why you sent me? Moses could have had a good moan at Aaron. He could have decided to give up and go home. He could have been reactive and defensive when challenged. But instead, he turned away from the people and faced the Lord. We too have a similar choice when we're under pressure. And I think we all know that we fall into a bad trap. We can um, dump ourselves, uh, dump, dump all our stuff onto those close to us. We can find a mate, we can find our spouse, we can find a best friend, go, yep, 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 this is how bad it is. We can shoot off an angry email. We can uh, post something on Facebook for the world to see. Or we can withdraw into the frustration into the familiar comfort of self-pity, a pity pit. I just want to encourage us all that it's as we turn away from the opinions and complaints of people and turn towards God that our hearts start to be transformed. It's in our relationship with God, in personal communion with our Heavenly Father, that our perspective begins to change. Not necessarily right away, but it begins to change. And that unseen reality of heaven becomes a place where we gain strength and we hear again God's promises. Our personal communion with the Lord in his presence is the power source of our lives. It's as we stand on his promises, we'll find ourselves becoming less swayed and distracted by other people's opinions, other people's complaints and other people's moans. And it's in communion with Jesus that the Holy Spirit will breathe faith, breathe the Holy Spirit into us so that we're hearing what God says about the situation. And he promises much. I've given myself the reading I like most. Packed with promises. <coughs> then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. I reaffirmed my covenant with them. 
Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of my people Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians. I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression. I will rescue you from slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and with great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. And this, this is just packed, packed full with promises. So, first of all, there are some reminders of ancient promises that had already been given. Some of us already had promises. These are reminders of promises already given. I am God Almighty who first appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I promised to give them Canaan, the promised land, hundreds of years ago. So that's some older promises that God is reminding them. Next, in verse 5, there are some promises of reassurance. I have seen your pain. I go on watching. I have heard. I go on listening. You can be sure that I see and I know. And then in verse 6, we have a fresh word of courage. This is what I describe as a prophetic promise. It's very specific. So this is what the Lord says in verse 6. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. I think it's really interesting. There's no time scale. God doesn't say it will take X days or X months or X years. It will happen. Um, God doesn't say how he's going to do this, but it's in this kind of no detail that we really, really have to dig in to trust our God. So no detail, but something very specific, a fresh prophetic word. And then reminders in verses 6 and 7, every promise that God has ever made um, to his people. You can read these promises from Genesis to Revelation. Listen to them. I am the Lord. I will set you free. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. I will claim you as my treasured possession. I will bring you into a land of possession. That is awesome. That is just awesome. Let's say them together. You can say them after me. I am the Lord. I, am the Lord. I will set you free. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. I will claim you as my own treasured possession. I will bring you into a land of promise. Wow, that is just, just amazing. How could we not be smiling? How could we not be the happiest people on earth? That is just awesome. We are the happiest people on earth. And I believe God wants to demonstrate that to a weary, wounded world, that we are the happiest people on earth because we have so many promises and we don't know what our lives are going to look like tomorrow. But God says, no eye has seen, no ear has ever heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Keep looking, keep focused. And then we have a promise to be obeyed. I was so aware of that prophetic word that Rachel brought this morning. Would you, could you just um, say it again, Rachel? Ish. 
have, have no other gods. That means no other gods, no other idols, nothing in place of God, absolutely nothing. So, um, I am the Lord is a promise to be obeyed, which is kind of, I'll explain, a bit odd to describe a promise in that way. God says, I am the Lord. God's name, I am, guarantees every single word that he speaks. I am the Lord. This is God's most powerful and commanding promise. Because he is the Lord, every one of us can be utterly confident of his protection, of his provision, his security and his free gift of salvation. Because he is the Lord, I must obey him. I must obey him. Because he is the Lord, I long, I love to obey him. So how do we begin to make these promises our own? I just want to get a little bit practical now. I want to say that it makes no difference how long you've been following Jesus and building your lives on his promises. You, every one of you, has a personal responsibility to keep these promises. It's nobody else's responsibility. It's mine to keep my promises I've been given, yours to keep yours. The problem is um, things, things get in the way. And I've just, just um, identified three ways in which we can um, begin to make these promises our own. First of all, we need to actively turn our attention from the seduction of our culture. Yeah. It's very subtle, it's very undermining. Moses had to leave that holy culture completely. And Jesus says that he prays for us to be kept safe in the world, but we're not to be of this world. We're not to be defined by the culture around it. Being counterculture was very tough for Moses. He had to leave behind the best, best he'd ever known. No, it might be tough for us. Being counterculture was quite tough for Jesus. His family often misunderstood him. Those his, the, who were his nearest and dearest, his mum, his dad, his brothers and sisters, they often misunderstood him. And I just want to say that whether you're married, whether you're not married, your best friend, your spouse, if your spouse is your best friend, may well misunderstand you sometimes. But actually, what matters is what the Lord has said to you and what the Lord is saying about you. Um, it's tough uh, to actively turn aside from the seduction of the culture of our family, of upbringing, the, the culture that we find ourselves most influenced by. Jesus said we would have trouble in this world, and he said things were going to get tougher, and they are getting tougher. They're getting a whole lot tougher. But the most amazing thing is... You know, if you feel, I can't even pray for myself. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for me. He prays we'll be kept safe in the world. You know, when I can't pray, when I just think, I, I don't know how to pray. But Jesus, you're praying for me. That is awesome. That is just so, so amazing. And Jesus promises that it gives us him great pleasure. It makes him very happy to give us his kingdom. I think that's incredible. He's happy to give us everything that's good in his kingdom. And Jesus says, be of good cheer, be very happy, because I've overcome the world, and so can you. So we need to 
just really turn our back on the seduction of our cultures. We need to learn to weed our own gardens. I'll explain a little bit. Even though Moses hadn't been in post for many months, he'd come under huge pressure. However compassionate he was becoming towards the plight of his people, he was a human being. And whoever we are, we can find ourselves worn down, worn down by the tragedy, the worldwide tragedy, the tragedy that we face in everyday life, in work, in our families, in our personal circumstances. We can be worn down by cynical, negative, unbelieving people. You know those kind of half-empty cups? People, and they can have such an impact on us. And that can happen at work, it can happen at home, in our family relationships, and yes, it can happen in church life too. You know, someone tells you an amazing story and you think, oh, it's all right for you. This kind of cynicism, this negativity, the world is full of it. Jesus says we are to be world changers. Mm -hmm. And so he wants us to be completely counterculture and to be people who rejoice in goodness and not to be half-empty cup people. We are to be people who stand firm and we are to be people who are responsible for weeding our own garden. I'm going to now read you a quote from this lovely desert island book, which I should be turning to quite often if I was on my desert island. Bill Johnson writes, I have found that when I'm in an emotionally vulnerable place, or even if I'm just physically tired, I have to be very careful to make sure I'm not around people who like to complain or be critical. I have to be very careful that I'm not around people who speak from a place of negativity or unbelief. I perhaps need to uh, find some other people to engage with if I'm exposed to those kind of people. It may not sound very compassionate, but actually I am the only one who is responsible for weeding out the weeds in my heart, for keeping my heart free of doubt and judgment. And I alone know when I'm vulnerable. No one else in the world knows. I actually personally think that it's not a bad idea to, to say to a, a trusted friend, a really trusted friend, look, I'm going through a tough time, I, I am feeling weak and vulnerable and tired, but I want to stand firm and I want you to pray for me. I don't want you to stroke me and sympathise me and say, yes, I know just how you feel, I've been there too. I want you to stand by me and to comfort me. Do you know what comfort means? It means to come along and strengthen. So we need to find just one or two trusted friends who will strengthen us in those times when we're having to weed our own gardens. The, second, the third thing is that we must learn to agree with what God says. Agree with the promises he's already given us. Don't let the enemy make your problems bigger than God's promises. That's what he does. He makes mountains out of molehills the whole time. Refuse to define yourself by anything according to what God says about you. If you're thinking, I feel or I, I, I think or they think, refuse. Re absolutely refuse it. Turn your back on it. Just agree with what God says about you. Agree with those promises he's already given. 
Learn to meditate. Define yourselves by the word of God. Train your minds to think in agreement with the word of God. That's hard work. We're, we're told not only are we are families, another metaphor, we are soldiers, we're an army, and we're to train ourselves in godliness. Train our minds to think as God thinks. Jesus himself faced huge temptation to quit and to take shortcuts. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have amazing promises to help us live in spiritual realities. Too easily we find ourselves tainted by the seduction of our culture. Love for God can become lukewarm. Do you know there's one thing that God hates? It's lukewarm love. He actually uses some pretty crude words in the Bible. He says, I'll vomit you out if you're, if you're half-hearted. He says, I don't, I don't enjoy half-heartedness. He said, I'll spew you out. Love God with all your heart and all your soul. Soak in the truth of God's promises that enable you to resist that subtle wearing down. And every one of us can find ourselves lured into addiction. Shopping, social networking, eating, exercising. I don't know what yours is. Mine is probably Radio 4. But <laughs> Jesus promises his truth that will set us free. Fellowship is vital. Nicky Gumbel once said that um, if you have some coals in the fire and you take one of them and they're, they're glowing beautifully and you take one of them out, it will soon actually just die. Get to home group. Home group is vital. I'm sorry I'm passionate about home groups. That's where we build each other up in the Lord. That's where we remind each other of the promises. We pray for one another. We speak God's words to each other. Get to home group though. It's brilliant. Um, and it, come here on Sunday mornings. This is just really, really important. Um, we believe that fellowshipping together on Sunday is absolutely vital. Tell each other God's stories. So last night, I got a problem with my technology um, halfway through the evening. I was a bit frustrated, so I thought, I'll go down and see Rebecca. She's my nearest neighbour. It'll take ages, but never mind. It took, actually, Izzy did it. It took two minutes. And do you know what we did? We spent course of an hour talking about the Lord, not dealing with my technology. And I was so encouraged by talking about the Lord and what she told me that I've asked her to tell us. Hope we'll be encouraged too. Thank you, Polly. Well, I'm really encouraged by what you've been saying so far. So, okay. Um, yeah, yesterday, I suppose it's no coincidence as well that it is the 9th of April. It was the 9th of April yeah. yesterday. And I was really encouraged by two things in particular. One was the jumble sale that we've talked about already. Now, I do want to say that actually Emily said it was our, it was an inspiration by our home group. Actually, it was Emily's idea. And I really want to honour her for that because she really had to step out. She sold it to our group. We all got behind it. And actually, it wasn't just about raising money for the refugees in Calais, which is a wonderful thing that we've done. But Emily felt very much that she wants us to reach out into the community more and, it, and actually get out there a little bit more and bring them in. And we had a huge amount of people yesterday, that many that I recognised from around town that you might have just nodded to or said hello to but you didn't really know. And they probably didn't know I was a Christian because you don't, don't tend to go around with a big badge on, do you, saying that you're Christian and things. So it was lovely to see them coming in. And my role yesterday was sort of, I was a bit floating around all over the place and sort of being a little bit bossy and telling people what to do, where to go and that sort of thing, but also welcoming people. 
I've had some wonderful conversations, and that's what we've really prayed about, that we would have some significant conversations with people, and um, that we'd actually just reflect Jesus to people that have never come into encounter him in any way before. And um, I'm not going to go into the detail of the conversations, because they were quite, some quite personal ones, but people that started off telling me that actually I'm an atheist, and then when you dug a bit deeper and you talked to them, you found out they had Christian parents, and that actually there was a whole thread of God going through their lives. Mm. And it, it was just really, really tingly and sort of warm. And I just thought, oh God, you have brought that person in for a particular purpose today. And I was able to, that person in particular, I said, please come along to church. Okay, they're not here this morning. That's fine. I've told them we're open in the week, if they ever fancy coming in for a coffee, all that sort of thing. And there were other less significant, well, not less significant, less, less long, shorter conversations but probably just as significant planting things. And I know that I'm not the only one that had those conversations as well. So that was really amazing. And there was also a point where I was standing at the door and um, no one was coming in at that time. I just looked across all, the, all of us lot, really. It wasn't just our home group. There were many others from the church that got alongside and supported us as well. And I just was like, I just felt God's real pleasure. Yeah. And he was just so pleased with what everyone was doing. And um. You just all look beautiful, actually. It was just amazing. I just saw a real radiance of you all as you were serving and chatting and talking to people in that environment. It was just absolutely lovely. So I was so encouraged by what's going on at a local level. The second thing was, now if you opened a newspaper yesterday or you had Radio 4 on on the BBC, you couldn't help but hear the news about Justin Welby, could you? And it was just so amazing. I don't know how many of you have read his personal statement. Have many of you read it? It just blew me away, actually. This man, who I already had a huge amount of respect for, but didn't know an awful lot about. And, you know, we kind of have these preconceptions sometimes, don't we, of privilege and the, how he's got to where he is today and all that sort of thing. But what a story. I mean, I encourage you to go away and read his story. I'm just going to read a little bit here. This is the start of his statement. Can I just read yeah, yeah. it? It says, In the last month, I have discovered that my biological father is not Gavin Welby, but in fact, the late Sir Anthony Montague Brown. This comes as a complete surprise. So I'm not quite sure how old Justin Welby is. He's probably in his 50s somewhere, isn't he? 60s. And I just thought to find that out about his identity at that stage in his life, and to live it out in the public domain, the whole of the UK and the world knowing, is quite something. But he goes on to say, this revelation has of course been a surprise, but in my life and in our marriage, Caroline and I have had far worse. And I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. He goes on to say, although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. It is a testimony to the grace and the power of Christ to liberate us and redeem us. Grace and power which is offered to every human being. And what a message to the UK, and he, he goes on as well in that statement to talk about the fact that he's come from a parentage um, where there's been alcoholism and early death, but that his mother 
has come to faith and actually been abstinent from alcohol since 1968. Amazing. And it's just such an encouragement. Thank you. And that's just gone out to the world. It's amazing. There you go. And we too have things to say. Wherever we go, we have this encouragement to not be afraid and speak out. This is God's word to us individually and as a church. Don't keep quiet. So, um, I just feel one more thing about living in the spiritual realities. We need to learn to meditate on God. Like Mary, um, she pondered on God's things. She, to meditate means to mutter, to actually really speak out and to keep on going over God's truths. And, you know, mindfulness is, is very popular as a discipline and it probably ha does have some benefits for people who are, whose minds are all over the place. But actually, we meditate on Jesus and in Jesus. The life that he gives as we meditate on him is profound. Um, we're going to have our third reading now, please, from Fraser. This is discouragement and desperation all round. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. But Lord, Moses objected, my own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I'm such a clumsy speaker. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders for the Israelites and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Okay, thank you. So we have these people in verse, uh, described in verse 9 as having become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. They couldn't listen any longer. And there will be some people in this room, I believe, who are very new to the faith, who've had some pretty rough things happened in your lives, um, things that have been thrown at you from as far back as you can remember, and yet God promises future hope. He promises new life. And God sent his precious son to deliver us from those things that life has thrown at us. And there are others who've only just begun our journey, um, and we are already seeing those promises. We are beginning to trust the Lord. Remember, Moses was a beginner. And every time, every time you speak your faith story, however much of a beginner you are, or however much further on you are, you will encourage someone. You'll get stronger, and the person you listen to will get stronger, as they realise there are promises there from God. Do you know, God has so many people for us to reach out to with his good news, in our town, in our families, in our workplaces. Let's really get bold and speak out the words of life to those around us. Discouragement is one of Satan's main, main <coughs> weapons. He uses discouragement and fear very, very quickly. And um, he, he will steal our confidence. He will cause us to move into discouragement very, very quickly, however long we've been a Christian. Just listen to this. It's, it's for me. It might not be for you. You might be different for me. I am responsible to God. 
I have decided to live in a healthy state of denial to my problems. I haven't got there yet. When the devil puts a request for attention across my desk, I say, request denied. I am aware that there are situations around me that can constantly bring me into discouragement. That's all of us, every single one of us. I am aware that I am living 15 minutes away from discouragement. <coughs> every one of us is living 15 minutes away, so we jolly well need to be on guard, meditate on those promises. So, verse 10, Moses, um, he's, he's in a bit of a state as well. My own people won't listen to me. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? Um, and so, Moses goes back to the Lord with honesty. He's learning right early on. There's no point in trying to cover things up with God. He doesn't, he's not impressed by our fine words or our religious talks. He, he calls us to a place of absolute honesty. But what's really interesting is that God doesn't give him a new promise. He just takes him back to what he's already said. Go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. There's no plan B for Moses when the going gets tough. And I love the fact that Moses is able to be really honest with God. Towards the end of the chapter, we have a genealogy. Um, we're not going to go through that, but the thing I love about this family tree is that um, there are stories of um, rogues, of um, people who've been conceived in incestuous relationship, there are people who are part of spiritual, um, pagan spirituality, stories of brutality and incest and deception. It makes no difference. God loves the whole world. And Moses and Aaron came from that line of people um, that are probably just like our um, Genealogies. God loves the world, he loves the good, he loves the great, he loves the godly, and he loves the ungodly. God is neither impressed nor depressed by who we are. He's just God, and his promises are absolutely, absolutely secure. But you know, Moses, even after all those promises, we're just going to have that quick fourth PowerPoint um, Jean, he's still argumentative and still lacking in confidence. So he says, um, so we have Aaron and Moses named in this list, in this family list. Um, they're the same ones to whom the Lord said, lead the people out of the, land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt like an army. It was Moses and Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. When the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to them, here it is again, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses still argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it, I'm so clumsy. Pathetic. But aren't we all, actually? But God says, I am the Lord. I just have such a sense that God has got something fresh for all of us here today. Um, do you know, sometimes we're given a promise and we're given a time scale on it. And uh, it's quite nice when you have a promise with a time scale on it. Um, so I've asked Pauline to just tell us about what happened when she had a time scale on the promise she was given. Thank you. Just a quick bit of background. I had something called diverticular disease, which is lots of horrible pouches in your bowel. 
and occasionally it flares up into something called diverticulitis, which is an infection in your bowel, which is very, very painful and very, very nasty. Put me in hospital on IV antibiotics, and normally the doctors leave me two types of antibiotics to take for it, so I've always got them at home. Last summer at Revive, um, I was in one of the meetings and there was prayer for healing. And Kristen Forster was praying for people's healing. So I went up and um, asked for prayer. Now at that time at Revive, when I was there that week, I had a bout of diverticulitis. I nearly didn't go, I felt so ill for the camping week. Because you all know what it's like, those that go there. It's not, you know, it's not, you haven't got a toilet nearby and all that stuff. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I knew it didn't go, but I was on these antibiotics and the pain was really nasty and I really didn't feel very well. And so I just went up for prayer. Now, I knew at that actual point that I was healed because the pain went instantly. Now, when you've got an inflammation like that and an infection in your bowel, it doesn't go just like that normally. It takes a while for antibiotics to take an effect and for the pain to gradually ebb away. And that had been my experience. I walked out of that tent at lunchtime, back across the field to, to have lunch, and I thought, whoa, I've got no pain. I didn't want to tell anyone at first because I thought for a minute, oh, I'll come back in a minute. But it didn't. I had no pain. I had no pain the rest of the week. It was completely fine. So I, I had that healing. Now, come, I think it was January this year, um, I suddenly got this pain again. Now, I knew I'd had healing. And it rocked my faith. I was down on my knees crying before the Lord at home and saying, Lord, I don't understand this. I thought you'd healed me. Oh, you didn't heal me just from that episode. I really, I really believe you healed me. And it really rocked me, and I had to, you know, you sometimes get in that place with God, and you've got to sort yourself out and get into the truth of, of what He really says. I am the Lord who heals you. So I, so I started going for prayer again. I went. I, Pete prayed for me, obviously, most days. Home group prayed for me on Sundays. I come up. Jean prayed for me one Sunday. He said, "Do you believe you were healed?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, then this is an attack from the enemy. It's not right. We're going to stand against it." Pain didn't go away. I went to a um, Christians Against Poverty prayer meeting on the Monday night. I was feeling really lousy. And I think, I don't want to take these antibiotics again because it's like I'm giving in to it. And they always make me feel ill anyway. And at the end of the prayer meeting, Aid came up and asked, how are you? And I told him. And he said, we've had enough of this. <laughs> he said, Jesus was, died on the cross and he was three days which was Monday night. He said three days he was in, in the tomb and then he rose again. He said, so I'm going to believe God is going to heal you in three days. And I took that as a promise from God. That was a promise from God. And I thought, I don't care how bad the pain gets. I don't, I'll ride them around. I'm not going to anything, do anything till those three days are up. And the pain was awful Tuesday and the pain was awful Wednesday. I woke up on Thursday morning and I was free of pain and have not had it since. Amen. Hallelujah. If God's promises are true, if He's told you something, it's going to happen. Absolutely. Thank you, Pauline. Can you take that? Sorry. 
So that's amazing, but it required persistence, it required dogged determination, it required being audacious actually, just keeping on, keeping on and not giving up. And so in a minute we're going to do some praying and if you are somebody who has, um, has got some kind of healing issue or some issue where you know God's promised something and it hasn't yet happened, um, do, there'll be time for Pauline to, in particular to pray for you because she has that recent story herself so she has faith to pray for those kind of situations. I, I want to tell you that the very, very first time that I knew that the Lord had spoken a prophetic word to me it was in this church in uh, probably 1990 and uh, I was scared, I, no one had ever spoken anything like this to me before and uh, they, the, we were sitting in pews and this guy from a vineyard church said, oh, I want you to stand up, um, the Lord's got something for you. And he said, you are going to be like that widow in the Old Testament who um, didn't have enough, but God promised her that there would always be enough until the rains came. And I didn't really know what it meant, but as, as I journeyed on with God, I realised that he is the supplier of all my needs. I had no idea what I'd need to draw on when I had that, that promise from him. I have no idea the things that we would go through in life, which just brought us right up to the edge, which brought us to a place where we were under pressure beyond what we could endure. And yet God has said, there will always be enough, and there always has been enough, and there always will be enough until the rains come. And I believe that someone here needs to receive that promise for themselves. Um, before we finish, uh, and we're going to finish by singing um, a song together, an amazing song that was with me all through the night. Um, Liz is going to come up and he's going to start playing it. Have we got a, a words for it up, Liz? Yeah, she did. Yeah, brilliant. So she's just going to start praying and I want to read you a prophetic word while she's praying. This is a prophetic word that came to this church. It's a very long one in 1991. Um, it was absolutely extraordinary. It is totally amazing. And we're starting to see the Lord doing these things. Okay. The Lord is going to open up the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament are clues for your healing and clues for your deliverance. In times past, this neighbourhood and this, this area has not seen revival because of oppression. The Lord is going to bring his glory in this place. The gospel will go forth in this place in healing and power and truth. This is the bit I believe the Lord wants us to hear. You will not be seen as a, group, a religious group. You will not be seen as a group of cranks or nuts or anything like that. You will be seen truly as a people of God, people in whose heart the Spirit of God dwells, people in whose heart God's mercy dwells, and his love and his forgiveness. And you will minister these things together with joy and hope, and the gospel will go forth in this place. So we're saying, shine, Jesus, shine. The last time in our country that there was a public proclamation was marked for March for Jesus. Graham Kendrick wrote this extraordinary song, Shine Jesus Shine. And I believe it's a now song again as we're asking the Lord to shine his gospel throughout our town, into our homes, into our schools, into our workplaces. So do stand and sing this amazing song. 
and ask the Lord to shine his light.